Good morning. We're glad to have everyone of you here with us this morning. And I was trying to think of another question to start out this this series with, just to kind of frustrate more folks, wrecking your your picture of of Christmas and the nativity. And, And so here's, I think, an easy one. What time of year was Jesus born? Christmas. You're new. <laughs> right. All right. I think I heard someone over here say spring. Okay, spring, summer, fall. Yeah, the scriptures actually don't really clarify, but we do have a, a few hints of when it might have been. I mean, one, it's likely not in the wintertime because if you're going to have people travel, uh, you wouldn't necessarily want them traveling in the in the winter time. So it, right there, you know, Joseph and Mary are traveling to Bethlehem because Caesar has decreed that a census should be taken. So uh, you know, being the the gracious sovereign Caesar, he wants people to travel so it's easy for him to get his money. So it's likely not in the winter time. Um, But there are some possible hints. One of them is the fact that there were shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very popular, uh, uh, surrounding area was a popular area for grazing. Often those sheep and those lambs that would have been raised or grazed out in the Bethlehem area would then be brought into Jerusalem, which is only literally a few miles away, for the fall festivals. So it's likely that Jesus is born early fall, late, perhaps summer. I was reading something recently where there's this, um, someone really smart, a lot smarter than me, was saying, you know, as the uh, wise men are following a star, while it could have been a single star, it also could have been a, a series of constellations that may be set up in a way that doesn't commonly happen. And so someone did some math and, and went back and looked at how the, star, the stars were and how they've changed. And one of the things that would have happened is that the, the um, what's it called, the constellation Virgo, the Virgin, would have been over the constellation of the lion, or, or in this case, they're trying to apply that to be Judah, which would actually happen in 3 BC on September 11th. So Jesus was born on Wednesday, September 11th, 3 BC, <laughs> according to this person. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know. I just thought that was very interesting. But the other thing that's interesting with that, if Jesus was born on September 11th, it's possible that the angel could have came to Mary sometime around December 25th and said, you will conceive. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will bear a child. Is that the, the, I I don't know. That's extra biblical. I'm going to stick with the text. I want us to actually start here this morning in... In Genesis, in the second chapter of Genesis, we read the account of God creating man and woman, Adam and Eve, this 
first couple. He placed them in a garden. And sometime after, again, we, we don't know how long it was. Sometime after that, the fall occurs, right? Our first parents eat the forbidden fruit. They rebel against God instead of trusting God to lead them and, and, and to be with them and, and that his ways were right and good. They seek to set themselves up as gods. And so we read in verse 8 of chapter 3, shortly after, right, they've eaten the fruit, all these things have happened. We read these words. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. How that actually plays out, I don't know, but I just love that picture, right? There's some sort of intimacy. There's this connection between God and, and Adam and Eve in a way that, that we don't fully experience. So they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They hid themselves, intentionally from the presence of God. God finds them, right? Can you imagine doing hide and seek with God? I don't think he worked that hard to find them. He's like, you guys are idiots. He has this pronouncement against their sin, their rebellion, against the man. There's some curses and consequences for the woman, some curses and consequences for the serpent, some curses and consequences. And then he casts them out of the garden. And then we read these words from Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24 says this. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this morning, we are going to continue our journey through the tabernacle. And we come to this, the veil, right? So I think we have some pictures here. You have the tabernacle, which is this, this full-on area, right? The tabernacle would uh, engulf... The whole uh, you know, tent area you would bring in. We, we, we dress kind of the, the brazen altar. We went in last Saturday. Uh, Saturday, excuse me. I'm thinking Jewish Sabbath. Into the, into the tabernacle, right? And we, we've talked about the menorah. And this, today, we're going to focus in on the veil. So the tent of meeting, if you were to zoom in here, you have this veil. It's kind of cut away there. It kind of has that reddish tint thing that would separate the outer court from the inner court. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, flip over to Exodus 26. And we're going to read the instructions that God gives Moses regarding this, this veil or this curtain. So Exodus 26, starting in verse 30, we read these words. <clears throat> then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. 
and it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp, and you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place, right, the outer court, from the most holy, the inner court. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside of the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle outside, excuse me, opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask as we come this morning before you that you would just humble us. Humble us as we realize that we serve an omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, holy God. One that is completely other and and outside of us. A God that is so holy that he is described as a consuming fire, burning up impurities, devouring sin. So let us walk humbly as we approach this text this morning. Because that is the God we serve. And we are grateful that he is that kind of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at a veil or curtain. This tapestry that Moses sees on the mountain, God gives us some descriptions of it. And he is instructed to create this cloth, this linen curtain that would hang in the tabernacle. And we create a, a partitioned off area within the tent, the actual tent area. And it would create this cube, this perfect squared space that inside of that would sit the Ark of the Covenant. And then outside of that, you would have kind of the holy place where there's the the table of the showbread and there's the menorah, there's the the altar of incense. And the priests would function primarily in the outer court there. This veil has a purpose to create separation. The veil would be about 15 feet by 15 feet. In the tabernacle, it was, we see that it's, it's, it's woven together with fine yarn. It's got these colors, this, this blue, purple, red, or, or scarlet, it says there. Why these colors? Just a little side note here. I think sometimes we have a view that, that, you know, the Jewish people and, and the temple, the tabernacle, it's this drab colors, Right, like if you grew up like me and you watched anything that had to do with like the Old Testament or even the New Testament stuff, like Jesus was like ahead of his time because he wore blue, right? And it was like everybody else had gray all the time. That's not what you actually see. The tabernacle would have colors, but you would come to this tapestry and it would just be ablaze with color. So don't think grays and drab. You have these these beautiful yarns woven together purple why purple well throughout the scriptures and even today in the modern world 
Purple's connected with royalty. Why blue? Blue could be described as the color of heaven, right? You look to the skies, generally it's blue. No, right now it's not really so much here. But normally, right, you look up, you know somewhere behind that gray, it's blue again, right? But it also points to eternal things. So you have purple, you have royalty, you have blue, you have eternal or, or, or heavenly things. And then you come to scarlet. It's interesting that the word actually used here in verse 1 of chapter 26 is the Hebrew word tola, which actually describes a worm. So he says, I want purple, I want blue, and I want this worm. And it's describing a specific worm, or literally a maggot, that would discreet uh, this, this liquid so you could smush it and would make this liquid that then you could dye material and it would become red. It's a little side note here, a little bracket. The Hebrew word for red is Adam, which should, in your mind, sound very similar to the Hebrew word for man, which is Adam. Dom, D-O-M, means blood. So you have red connection automatically, right, with blood. And then you have Adam who has blood, right? So there's, there's something there. We'll get to that a little bit later. So you have this tapestry that displays royalty, divinity, and blood separating the holy place from the most holy place. And then embroidered upon or maybe stitched within this veil is the only heavenly creature that God gives man permission to recreate. And what's that creature? Cherubim. You have cherubim displayed on this veil separating God from the people. Almost like Genesis chapter 3 where God puts man outside of the garden and he sets cherubim to separate them from entering back in. It shall be made with cherubim, we are told, skillfully worked into it. Cherubim are weird creatures. In Ezekiel chapter one, we read that cherubim have a human form, but then their faces, they have four faces. They have a human face. They have a, a face of an ox. They have a face of a lion, and then they have the face of an eagle. They have multiple wings. Their feet are like hooves. Their entire body is covered with eyes. They are associated with the presence of God. They are associated with God's righteous judgment. And they guard the Holy of Holies. This tapestry is a barrier that separates the people from God and God from the people. And what do you know God says to Moses should be etched across this tapestry are the same angelic beings that God posts to keep us away from the garden when God walked with man. Why? Why hang this tapestry? Why separate? These two spaces. God is trying to instruct through the tabernacle that the presence of God is so awesome that finite, sinful man can't just walk into this area, into the presence of God, just flippantly. Once a year, 
the high priest, once a year, one guy, after going through this ritual of cleansing himself and doing all of his prof, uh, uh, you know, plan and, 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 and things, after sacrificing an animal for his own sin, he comes once a year into the Holy of Holies. So in some ways, what God's doing by instituting the tabernacle is he's giving us a glimpse, right? He, he sets up cherubim. You can't come back into this garden. But then through the tabernacle, the door starts to crack open. Once a year, a human being gets to enter into the Holy of Holies because they get to pass through this veil. Just once a year. It's just a little crack. It's a little bit there. Right? It's Maybe you've outgrown this. I don't know. Maybe now you use a nightlight because you're afraid you're going to fall over something going to the bathroom or whatever. But remember as a kid, all you needed was light in the hallway to peek through the bottom of the door. And you were like, okay, we're good. You kind of get that here. There's a little bit of light. There's a little bit of glimpse. There's a little bit of hope. We have access through one guy once a year gets to go into the tabernacle. Also, here's a little random note here. There is no instructions for the veil on there being a divide or a doorway. It seems like the veil is, is just there. So when this high priest once a year would enter into the tabernacle, it's likely he crawled under the veil to enter into it. And we don't know that for sure, but it, but it seems like that's something that's being implied in some of the directions here. The holiness of God is no joke. God is being gracious by putting a veil here because it stops the priests who would function in the outer courts from accidentally or inadvertently stumbling into the presence of God and so dying. Because if the high priest didn't perform his duties properly before entering in on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, he would die. So how does a veil in a tabernacle that no longer exists prepare our hearts for Christmas? Because we celebrate with joy because Christ, the better and greater veil has come. A better veil has come in that any who pass through this veil can enter into the very presence of the holy, holy, holy God. That's why we celebrate Christmas. If you are a Christian, you can come into the presence of God and you don't have to fear being consumed by fire. Why? Because Jesus is a superior veil. When Adam and Eve are, are cast or removed from the garden, a cherubim is placed at the entrance to keep humanity from returning. A barrier was established between man and God and the Lord continues to interact with his people in a very different way, right? But then the Lord comes in a very different way. He comes in flesh and he comes to live as us, as, as mankind, to do something. He cracks open even further 
the light comes into the world. The prophet Isaiah gives us some hope of, of what Jesus did. In Isaiah chapter, chapter 25, listen to this description. Hear how Isaiah gives us a glimpse that the veil's gonna change. How God interacts with man's gonna change. Isaiah 25, starting verse 6, speaking of the mountain, speaking of Zion, speaking of Mount Moriah where the temple was when they eventually come into the promised land. Verse, verse 6, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Who's included in all peoples? That's every tribe, tongue, nation, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. The covering there could, could be described literally that the Hebrew word is the same word that's being used, veil, in Exodus. The veil that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And he will say on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I wonder who Isaiah is talking about. Flip over to Mark chapter 15. In Mark chapter 15, starting verse 7, uh, sorry, 37, we read these words, right? Mark 15 is, is the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus has come into the world, the light of the world. We talked about that last week. Check that out if you don't know what I'm talking about. He has come into the world. He has lived this perfect life. He has become a greater Adam, if you will, right? The first Adam rebels. The second Adam, the perfect Adam, Christ comes, does all that God has called him to do, perfect obedience, yet he is nailed to a cross like a common criminal to die for us. So we read in Mark 15, starting verse 37, these words as Jesus is on the cross, he says this, and Jesus uttered a loud voice and he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Would you have to understand in this time, the temple is now established. The veil in the temple is not 15 by 15. It's 60 feet tall. And it's about a hand's width. I have small hands. A hand's width. Can you imagine tearing a veil that thick? 
The only thing that pops into my head, and I'm aging myself, if you are fans of Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania, right? What did he do? He would tear his shirt. But uh, did any of you ever notice that the back of his shirt was already torn? So even Hulk Hogan needed some help. You have a veil that is as wide as a hand, stitched together with, with these fine fibers, and it's being torn 60 feet high from the top, not from the bottom. Surely God is showing that this is divine work that is tearing this veil, separating the veil. Could you imagine if you were, I don't know, the hot, one of the priests working in the outer court and this veil tears in half? Your first thought is, I'm dead. Not because the veil is torn, but because what's behind the veil. And you know that if you went behind the veil and you didn't go through this process, you were dead. God tears this veil from top to bottom. The torn veil provides a glorious picture. It's, it's showing something that is foundational to the faith that we profess as believers. God has done all that needs to be done so that all who believe in his son through his finished work can enter into through this veil. Separation is over. We pass through a greater veil. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the superior veil. Jesus Christ himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to enter into the presence of God, the only way you can do it is through Christ. The only way that you can approach God is through Christ. The writer of Hebrews points this out. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, the writer says this, therefore, brothers, right? If you see the word therefore, when you're studying the Bible, you should always look back and understand, well, why? Something's being said, therefore, because of this, this. is just finished stating that, that there's, God's going to create this new covenant. He's going to do all these amazing things. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, he says. And we come to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain or through the veil that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest, also talking about Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with the true hearts in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The only way to come before the full presence of God is through that curtain, through his flesh, by his blood. We celebrate Christmas because the superior veil has come. Its name is Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there is no way we can come before the presence of God. There's no way. Jesus 
is the second and perfect Adam. And what does he do? He leads us back to God. The first Adam drove us away. The greater Adam comes and leads us back into a better and perfect Eden. We call that the new heaven and the new earth. Church, we celebrate Christmas since a better and greater veil has come. This veil did not come to separate us. This veil came to be the way by which we come in. This is why I wanted to point that out. There doesn't seem to be any instructions of like, divide the veil in half so that once a year it can be pulled apart so that this guy priest can go in. There doesn't seem to be that. But yet the greater veil becomes an actual door by which all who would believe in him and him alone can enter into the presence of God. Merry Christmas. That is far greater than anything you will find under the tree this year. So what do we do? What's the application? What's the point? What's the charge here? Here's my charge for us, church. Joyfully celebrate your access to God. I am charging you to be joyful. And please don't think, you can't do that, Pastor. I am in good company because all you got to do is read through Paul and you will find out that he tells us over and over and over again, joy, rejoice, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. There is a decision to be made. Will you be joyful? Because you have access to God. Or will you choose to diminish this reality? God is still holy. That hasn't changed. But Christ has changed everything for us. Jesus changes everything. From that passage that I just read in Hebrews, the writer is saying, we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' death on a cross did something for you. We enter in, the author continues, verse 20, by a new and living way. He, Jesus, opened it through his flesh. There is a new and greater way to have access to God, and it's not through any other means, right? I don't care if you think there are some sort of religious works that you're going to do that then God's going to say, wow, that's amazing. You can come before me. That doesn't happen. There's no other religion that you can find. We don't all come up a similar mountain, come to the same point. That's not true. Don't look inside yourself. You're not going to like what's really there. Scripture says that your heart is deceitful above all things. We need to look outside of ourselves to a greater and better thing. And we find it in Christ. And then we find this way through Christ to come into the fullness of the presence of God. You should have joy. Why? Because literally all you need to do is, Lord, guess who's listening to you? You don't have to go into a mikvah and bathe yourself. You don't have to put on special garments. You don't have to wait till one time during the year and hopefully pray you don't die when you crawl underneath the veil. At any moment, at any time, wherever you are, you can have the presence of God because he is with you. 
Isn't it amazing that one of the promises that Jesus gives before he leaves is that the presence of God will dwell in his people? If you think God has forsaken you, go back to Matthew 15 and read the words of Jesus when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And say, thank you, Lord, because Christ was forsaken so that we who believe in him will never be forsaken. God is always with you and he is always for you if you are in Christ. You are not forsaken. If you are thinking, well, surely God won't come near to me. Surely I won't have access to him. I'm a mess. Look at my sin. I am pursuing foolish things. I even know who he is and I turn my back on him. And it is through Christ that you have been cleansed. You are no longer who you once were. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's the old self that you're still working to choke out. But in Christ, God looks at you and he says, beloved. I am limited, but I have tried to teach my kids that at any moment, if you need me, you let me know. We have a God who is open to us. Those angelic guardians, the cherubim, have been disarmed and they are pulled back because the children of God can march right into his presence. What is the end of Christ's life, death, and resurrection? What is the supreme end of the gospel? Is it forgiveness? No. Is the supreme end of the gospel that we get to live forever and ever? Guess what? Non-believers will live forever and ever. Is the gospel redemption? Is it mercy? Is it all these other things? No. They're merely the means of grace by which you can obtain the end of the gospel. The end of the gospel. The good news is that we get God. And if you don't find joy in that, your God is small. You don't know who our God is. He is glorious. He is awesome. He is beyond all that we can fathom. That is the end of the gospel. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because the veil has been torn and a greater veil has come. And all who pass through that veil are washed clean. And we enter in and we get God. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our treasure. Why do we not celebrate this? It's because we don't know who God is. Pray that we would find joy and we would celebrate that access. Come and, and sit before the throne of God and learn who he is so that you would delight in him in all things and you would want to be more and more and more and more drawn into him. We celebrate with great joy because through Christ we get God. I don't have anything else to say about that. Because how do you explain the awesomeness of God? So let's just take a moment and be still. And know that he is God and we are not. And let's just take a moment and be still and know that we can come into the presence of that holy, holy, holy God.
Lord, I pray that you would help us to be humbled at the reality that the one who merely speaks a word and all things that are or ever will be have been created out of nothing into existence. Lord, let us be grateful because the holy God who is an all-consuming fire has prepared a way by sending his only son, his beloved one, to take on the sins of the world, to take on our mess and receive what we deserve. We deserve to be forsaken. We deserve the wrath of God to be poured out upon us. But instead, he took it so that we can enter into the presence of the holy, majestic, awesome God. And that wherever we are, you are with us. We have full access and can boldly approach. Lord, let us be humbled by that reality, but let us also be stirred to joy. If we have you, what else could we possibly need? You are what we were created for. You are where we find the fullness of why we exist. You are the thing that satisfies every desire of our heart. So help us to regularly, consistently, faithfully come again and again and again into your presence. And we sing songs of praise and gratitude because it's through the new and greater and superior veil, Jesus Christ.